Hello and welcome back to the Maluli Asset Podcast. I'm your host, Casey Maluli, back with the full squad here. We've got Tim, Tom, and Brendan joining me around the table for episode 427. We're going to start out talking about the hottest topic in investing right now, and that is treasury bills? Treasuries of the new meme stocks. Apparently. Apparently that's the the hot topic of conversation. We have treasury bills that are paying around 4%. It's a topic of conversation because I think it is an opportunity for people. A lot of the, the big major banks out there still aren't paying, uh, still haven't increased their, their interest payments on uh, savings accounts, even though the Fed raised rates by 400 basis points or 4% last year. Some of these banks are still lagging behind and, and haven't moved yet. Um, so it seems like a no-brainer to move savings accounts from an institution that's not paying these higher rates to one that is, but people are hesitant to do that. So um, Inertia. I was going to say, you said it in a nicer way. I just, I think some, um, it takes more effort to like pick up and, and move your stuff somewhere else. So that stops a lot of people, even if it could be in their best interest in the short term. I think it's worth reminding listeners that, uh, you know, money that you have parked in cash or in some kind of short term parking fund, like a checking account or, you know, a, some kind of savings deposit account that you plan on using in the very short term, you don't really want to move that too often to uh, maximize your returns because you may need that money. And if you have to cash something in before it comes due, like a T-bill or a certificate of deposit, you know, you'll have some kind of penalty uh, or market repricing if you have to get out of a, a CD before it's due. Uh, you're going to have whatever the price of the T-bill is before it comes due. You're kind of at the mercy of the market at that point. So uh, I think it's making people examine how much do we really need to keep in what in the business, what we call cash. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's balancing that liquidity need with risk-taking need. And you also don't want to sacrifice something like FDIC insurance if that money is going to be needed, especially uh, in the short term. So it's really all about balancing that and everyone's situation is different. It just it just seems like a layup for for people to take advantage of. But we hear it all the time, even with with people around our conference table, they're hesitant to switch banks, especially if it's a brick and mortar type institution to one of these more online based savings platforms. Yeah, the opportunity to do this has been there for the last decade, let's call it, in terms of just online savings accounts versus regular savings accounts offered by brick-and-mortar banks. Uh, Maybe the juice is more worth the squeeze now because you can get three-plus percent versus zero, whereas, you know, a year, year and a half ago, it was probably more like 50 or 75 basis points uh, versus zero. But the opportunity has always been there. I guess it's just a matter of, if the amount of money that you hold in cash and savings is enough in dollar terms for you to pick up and move. For me, that threshold's super low, even if it's something like 10, 20, 30 grand that you're keeping as an emergency reserve, I would still rather earn 
half a percent more on that, but some people do the math and they're like, eh, I can't be bothered for a few hundred dollars. And uh, maybe maybe they reconsider that now because the gap is probably more like two or three or even four percent that you could get just by, by moving uh, your money to some kind of a different platform, whether that's uh, CDs, an online savings account, treasuries, uh, you know, so- something of that nature. I mean, it's always made sense mathematically to do it it's just a matter of comfort levels and overcoming inertia i think for folks is it too late for people to do this now like now that it's become a mainstream thing like is it has the opportunity passed like if if the fed were in 2023 now the fed's path is less certain than it was last year they're saying that they might uh slow down in their february meeting in a couple of weeks and and slow down the pace um, so could these banks do an about face and uh, lower rates in lockstep with the Fed? Or what are, your, what are your guys' thoughts on that? I feel like as of right now, the consensus is that rates are probably going to stay in the general ballpark of where they are for at least a, a little bit. Um, but at the same time, I feel like if you asked anybody, even going back to like the end of 2021, where they thought rates were going to be, I don't think anybody would have said where they are today. So, yeah, I guess we we don't really know what the next year or so is going to hold. I mean, I don't I don't think anybody would have predicted that the Fed would have raised rates five, six, seven times last year. The opportunity was there before the the Fed hiked rates. So I would say you yeah. make the you make the move, and if rates end up going the other direction, that's going to be something that happens across the board, and you'll you'll still be better off than holding the cash at a brick and mortar bank. That's literally the worst place that you could keep savings. I prefer you keep it there to not having it at all. But like, I wouldn't worry about where interest rates are headed because like Tim said, nobody is capable of predicting that reliably. So it's, it's anybody's best guess. To get back to your question, is it too late? I'll just share a story. In January of 1980, my dad came home from the bank he had an account, uh, he had accounts everywhere, but uh, he had an account at Marine Midland Bank in New York. No, it's no longer around. So he came home uh, and he was so proud of himself because he had a three-month CD for 20%. Wow. percent. <laughs> and I remember saying to him or asking him, how long is that for? He said, for three months. And I said, you couldn't do it for like a year or two? That would be awesome. And he's like, why would I do that? The rates just continue to go higher and higher and higher. I don't want to lock my money up. Mm. And that was the peak right there. Uh, Rates started to move down. Uh, Well, they they kind of stayed at those levels for uh, about nine months. But pretty soon after that, rates started moving down. So yeah, rates are going up. We don't know. There's plenty of people out there that are uh, speculating that the Fed's going to be cutting rates at some point in the future. Everyone's got an opinion about that. I don't necessarily agree with it. But I think the other, the other part of this conversation is it's worth examining how much money you have in cash and how much you have at a certain bank. There are some banks that are out there that are saying, hey, the idle cash that we have for our clients' deposits, 
uh, we're actually making a profit on them now where we, we weren't uh, for the last 14 years. We, didn't, we couldn't earn interest on short-term investments. Uh, we couldn't pay our clients, uh, our depositors, anything either. Uh, now they can. So these banks are going out and they're over investing this money overnight uh, and they're earning an annual rate of something above 3%, maybe close to 4%. And there, there's still banks out there that are paying 0 0.02 you know, some really low number, and they capture the spread. Right, good for the banks, not good for you. Correct. So remember, the banks are in this for a profit. People forget that sometimes. Yeah, it's interesting because there seems to be that level of trust with the bigger type brick and mortar banks than, like I said earlier, with than some of these online banks. But these, the bigger banks are the ones that are doing this kind of arbitrage, if you will, where they're making uh, higher profits off of savings accounts. And also one of, one of the other topics that we wanted to talk about was, I think it was Morgan Stanley, some of their, not in the banking division, but some of their investment advisors or in their investment advisory team were using things like uh, WhatsApp and internal messaging platforms and they got slapped with a pretty big fine of over a million dollars. These are going to be internal fines, but you see everything that's happened with Wells Fargo the last five years or so, and you know they're still hanging in there because they're one of these big recognized brands. So I think that that's an interesting dichotomy that exists in, in finance. We trust them while they do untrustworthy stuff. Yeah. Well, and the, the, the banks that keep their rates down at 0.05% to make money, it's that's you said it was mostly the big banks doing it. It's, that's how they become big banks. They have a name brand. They don't, they <laughs> By don't, making a lot of money. They don't need to. People are just going to leave their money with them because they trust the institution. And yeah. the online banks are paying more money because they're probably using it as a loss leader or, or at least uh, they're, they're not making as much profit as the big banks that could to try to get business because they're not as well known. Right. But they're all still FDIC insured, so I don't know why the level of trust wouldn't be there if that's still there. I don't need a special name on a building to make me feel comfortable. I think a lot of folks in general tend to overlook how banks operate. And this kind of goes back to my previous comment in the sense that when you make a deposit at the bank, the money is not sitting there. They owe you that money. It's a, when you put a deposit at the bank, it's now a liability for the bank. They, the bank takes it and they invest the money, but they owe you that money. And you can walk in and demand deposit. That's what this used to be called, a demand deposit account, uh, where you could demand the, all the money back at once. And What's they had to pay. Is that the comfort of using a brick and mortar bank today, like if you want to keep your savings there and it's it's a sizable amount enough that like you need to feel comfortable with the institution you're keeping it at. If you went in and tried to withdraw, let's say it's a hundred thousand dollars today, they're not giving it to you today. They would give you a hard time. They give you a couple of days. Yeah. Or you could click a button on a screen at an online bank and you could have that in a couple of days too. Right. It's the same thing. It's not as if you can go and they're going to open the vault for you to Scrooge McDuck into at your bank on the corner. So it's but there are still a lot of people out there who yeah. believe that. Yeah, mm -hmm. I can just go to, down to the bank on the corner. It's there. There's my money. They have to, my money to their That's detriment. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think, and it's easier to harp on now because of where rates are and gets people's attention. But like this has been true. Yeah, yeah. 
and people continue to keep savings there. Ultimately, like you've you've got to be comfortable with where you're keeping your money, and if you want to keep it at an institution that pays you 0.1% to keep it there, then, I mean, that's a choice. I view that as a cost. I think if you thought about it more that way in terms of, like, I'm paying a fee to keep my money here, uh-huh. and I could be right. made the convenience by getting market rates someplace else, yeah. if you looked at it as a, as a cost instead of something that you gain incrementally, then even a few hundred dollars of interest prior to all the rate hikes uh, as a fee, it's like I could, I could, uh, I could be paying a five hundred dollar fee to be keeping my savings here, or I could, I could uh, pay nothing to keep it someplace else, rather than, you know, the reverse of that, which is like, oh, it's not worth five hundred dollars of interest to move my account. It's like, well, I don't know, matter yeah. matter of opinion, I think it might be, but. So, kind of wanted to shift gears here and, and talk about. A topic of conversation that we cover a lot with clients and and people come to us wanting to know what to do when they inherit a large sum of money. You know, a lot of the time it comes out of the blue and, and people don't have a plan for it and they need help setting priorities or they feel like they they need to basically not blow it with this money because it's usually found money and it could be setting them up for retirement. It could be paying down debt. It could be buying a second home or something like that. And I think a lot of people need help just kind of talking things through and taking stock of where they're at currently and prioritizing what to do with that money. So they're, it makes them feel like they're being productive with that money and doing everything they can with it. So I know that it's hard to give specific advice without digging into someone's actual um, finances and understanding their full pictures. But what are some of the common themes that you guys are seeing when it comes to inheritances? Or um, what are some rules of thumbs, rules of thumb, plural, (laughs) that uh, people should be thinking about when they inherit a large sum of money? I think the first thing would be you don't have to be in a hurry. Yeah, I was going to say just slow down in general. It feels like for for some people, the money is just burning a hole in their pocket or they, they have the idea, which might not be ill-intentioned, that we should be doing something with this. Like we should put this to work or we should, we, we want to make the most of it or we, you know, let's, let's be smart and let's do something with it. And sometimes that's jumping the gun and the smartest thing that you could do with it is take a breath, kind of assess the situation before you run out and try and put it to work or, or find someone to invest it for you. Because oftentimes people have things that they need to pay for or things that they want to do with this money. So a large chunk of it ends up not even needing to be invested at all. Sometimes it's just, hey, this money actually is best served at the bank. They just need someone on the at the other end of the table to to tell them that. Not a brick and mortar bank. Well, I think it also kind of makes people a little vulnerable if they go talk to an advisor with this money burning a hole in their pocket. Yeah, I think that they don't understand that the false sense of urgency that they're feeling and the guilt about having money at the bank has been implanted into their brain by people trying to sell them stuff. Yeah, like because it's the same. It's the same tone that we get from people who think that 
their whole, they need to explain their cash balance. Like, I know I have too much cash is something we hear repeatedly all the time. And the answer is like, it depends. It's possible that what you have in cash is too much based on your anticipated expenses over the next couple of years or whatever horizon seems reasonable. Um, but it's, it's also possible that the cash is insufficient or it's the perfect amount. And so I think that that same idea of just making people feel guilty about having money that isn't working for them or whatever air quotes you like, you don't need to have every dollar on your balance sheet working for you, whatever, whatever that means for you. But people that do what we do for a living are to blame for what I'm explaining right now because because they are incentivized to take other people's money and do something with it because that's how they earn a living. It doesn't mean that's always what's best for uh, the person whose money it is, and I think that helping people to determine that is what being a fiduciary is, and that's, I think, the difference between how we try to help people when they come to us in these situations and others is that we want them to slow down, like we've said, we want to consider all the possible uses for this money and reasons that it shouldn't be in the market first. And once we've eliminated all of those and thought everything through is when you can you can do something with it, I think, in terms of investing, at least. I feel like being a fiduciary and, and explaining that to people throughout our process is where we tend to get a lot of trust from prospective clients and eventual clients, too, because there are situations where, you know, we explain that you you could put all this money into into the market and we would bill on it and you know it, that's more money for us but that's not the best thing for you so we're actually telling you to leave sometimes a large portion of your money at the bank because that's what's best for you you don't necessarily need to have all of it in the market or all of it in your accounts unfortunately it seems like that's rare in our line of work and you can see people realize that in their head and, and they're like oh i can I can trust these people. Like they, they're looking out for me in that sense. It's unfortunate sometimes. Uh, I, I can just imagine that someone shows up on the doorstep of another investment advisor, and the investment advisor just hears a cash register ringing in their head when someone says, "Hey, I've, I just inherited this money, and uh, I feel like I should be doing something with it." I have to do something with it. No, you don't. Yeah, I feel like there's this pressure, though, especially because someone usually it's a relative who's passing away and it's a sad occasion and they have this pressure to it's kind of like an honor an honor thing maybe where it's like all right i have to do the right thing with this money because they gave so and so would have wanted me to to do the right thing but it's it's interesting to i think like like tim said to see that versus people just earning regular paychecks like, do people feel the same way with the dollars that they earn every single week? I feel like it's it's heightened because someone else gave it to you or left it to you. But if you earn it, I feel like there isn't that same um, level of expectation. And a dollar you, is a dollar, but we right, they're the, they're the yeah, same thing. Exactly. But it's like you know, maybe the inheritance is used to better allow you to to spend or to save more from your your paycheck every single week or you know the money that you regularly earn yeah i agree and i think that is serving a purpose that is doing something it's funny to me that that people tend to or 
seem to hold the inheritance money at like a higher standard. They want to do something right with it because someone, you know, Grandpa uh, Joe would have wanted to me to trade options yeah. with this money, so I'm going to do but, it. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's like, so the money that you didn't work for and was quite literally gifted to you is worth more to you than the money that you go to your job every single day of your life and earn that money. It's like, why do you care more about the dollars that you didn't work for than the dollars that you put your blood, sweat, and tears into every single day? Like, every dollar is the same. Like Brendan said, a dollar is a dollar. Yeah. It's just, it, it's a funny psychological aspect of, of finance. I, I agree. You can see yeah. the other end of the spectrum from what we're talking about, too, in terms of a sense of urgency with an inheritance. Some people freeze because of the, mm-hmm. the things that we're right. discussing here and, and how much importance they place on doing the right thing with an inheritance but it's far more rare than what we began the conversation talking about in the sense of people who feel some false sense of urgency because unfortunately financial and other people have gotten well if you just put it in amazon 10 years later you would have been a trillionaire jeff bezos yeah so yeah there's um the potential for a lifestyle change depending on who gets the inheritance. This could be people who are just not used to seeing that kind of lump sum of money all at once and they're overwhelmed and don't know what to do. And so they feel like, gosh, I shouldn't have this money sitting in the bank at 0% interest. I should be doing something. But on the flip side, one of the things that we try to show them is think about the peace of mind that you're going to have by knowing that you've got six months or 12 months or more of your expenses sitting in a bank so liquid yeah able to you're, be spent you're ready to go you are in a good financial position maybe for the first time in your life do you really want to have all of this money at risk that's probably not prudent so it can be life-changing but it can also be uh, just as overwhelming for some people it stinks because, that, like I, I said in the beginning, they don't have bad intentions with going to seek out somebody for help with this money. Like you said, it could be the first time they have any sort of money in their life, and they seek out a professional uh, to, to help them, and you just logically, as a human, would think that this professional has my best interest in mind. Instead and of that, it, they're preying on their worst instincts instead of explaining exactly. to them why they can afford to slow down and why there are right. very few financial urgent emergencies. Yeah. And it if stinks. you feel like you're having one, you should carefully reconsider whether it's the truth or not. Yeah. If you're trading these, options these don't, Grandpa yeah. Joe wanted you to, you might yeah. have something that's urgent because you could be in trouble. But yeah. like if you're doing reasonable stuff with your money, there's very few situations that are an emergency that requires urgent attention. Yeah, it's unfortunate. People get taken advantage of. Yeah, so a lot of cash management topics covered in in this week's episode. If you've got questions about that, definitely let us know. Also, just wanted to throw this in here, guys. 30 years since the ETF was created. So uh, happy birthday to the ETF. In 1993, the last week of January, the first ETF was launched. And now look at us. So, who would have thought? I'm 30. 30 years later. Tim, congrats. Me and the ETF, hand in hand. Look at you guys doing, <laughs> both out here doing it. Yeah. I bought shares of SPY for my sister that year. 
93. And I had yeah, and I had to explain what an what an exchange traded fund was because they weren't calling them ETFs back then. So Why is it UIT? It's fraud. It's not even an ETF. <laughs> Bought me a spider. <laughs> Thirty years later, we are still explaining what ETFs are. Yeah. So that'll never maybe, change. Yeah. Again. Maybe at forty years, we won't have to do that anymore. <laughs> unlikely. Not unlikely. Blood, <laughs> not bloody likely. So thanks for tuning in. As always. This was episode 427 of the Maluli Asset Podcast. We'll be back with you next week. Tom Maluli is an investment advisor representative with Maluli Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast.